The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. So if any of you are feeling guilty about sending holiday cards out late, never fear, because I had a friend send me a holiday card that I got last week. It's still the new year, right? They sent me a happy 2019 card in mid-February, which was nice. But I was actually thrilled to get this card, not just because it was a nice gesture from a friend, but because these two on the bottom, Mark and Sarah, are the first couple that I ever married as a minister. Yeah. About eight years ago, before I was ordained, actually, I did the wedding ceremony for the two of them in Virginia at a flower farm. Beautiful outdoor wedding in September. They have two beautiful boys now, as you can see. And so every time I get their holiday card, I confess to them. And if you are on Facebook, you saw I confessed on Facebook. I feel a little proud. (laughs) Like, yeah, I did that. Yeah. Now, of course, I had very little to do with that. And there's not really much for me to be proud of. But there is one story from that day that I am still proud of and that I still tell. You see, my first ever wedding ceremony, I am sitting with the groom back in that little room before everything starts. And about 10 minutes before the ceremony was scheduled to begin, his best man comes in and says, hey, man, give me the rings so I can hold them for the ceremony. Now, the rings were in a box in the hotel room, 45 minutes away, (laughs) except none of us knew that. Mark thought he had them. And so what happened was 10 minutes of pure panic searching through the room, searching through their pockets, wondering if the rings had fallen out in the car, going out to the car to check the, under the seats. And it became pretty clear to me that we were not going to find these rings in time for the ceremony. And so I told everybody, listen, the rings are somewhere, all right, and we're going to find them, but we're not going to find them right now. <laughs> and I said, hold on one second. And I went out to the crowd that was waiting, and I went up to the front row where Mark's parents were sitting. And I said, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Elbert. Good to see you. Are you two wearing your wedding rings? And they said, yeah. I said, great. I'm going to need them for the ceremony, please. And they took off their wedding rings, and I took them back, and Sarah and Mark got married with his parents' wedding rings. And nobody knew. The great thing about that story, honestly, better than what happened in the moment, was that I get to tell that story now to every other couple that comes to me nervous about something going wrong at their wedding. And I say, hey, at the first wedding I ever did, they lost the rings. And they're still married. It calms everybody down, I think, because it reminds people that the wedding day isn't really what matters in the long run, right? The marriage is what matters. It can rain. We can lose the rings. It can be too cold. The food can be all messed up. But it's the years that come afterwards that are what are really important. This message series that we are concluding today, that we started at the beginning of the year, called What We Set Our Hearts On. It is about all of the commitments we make the commitments that help us grow and help us find fulfillment. And in the beginning of this message series, way back in January, we talked a lot about what doesn't help us grow, 
right? Any kind of commitment that we make that is fueled by aggression towards ourselves or someone else, any kind of commitment we make that's really about guilt or motivated by the fear of not measuring up, those kinds of commitments are missing something like the soil underneath, right? Something to nurture and sustain them when it gets hard. And a couple weeks ago, Reverend Abby Tennis came to join us as a guest preacher. And she talked about how in those long-term commitments, we will always encounter unexpected changes, right? Changes that we can only grieve and move through, that we can't get around. And last week, Frank reminded us that all of these commitments we make, all of these ways that we dedicate ourselves to something, doesn't mean that the uncertainty goes away. The uncertainty stays with us, and on some level, we need to accept that. So those are all of those tough parts of the long haul, of what it means to sustain a commitment. And so we can grieve the changes that come along with it. We can accept the uncertainty that will always be there. But then, how do we start living bravely again? How do we reconnect to that thrilling and beautiful part of the journey and the commitment that we have made? I read an article this week by a blogger and a writer. Her name is Jessica Johnston. It was about this longing that we have for connections and relationships that are intimate and reliable and meaningful and long-term. And she cites the same research that I've read a million times, right, the research that you've probably seen, that being lonely actually shortens life expectancy. If we feel alone, it actually has a physical impact on our bodies and our lives. And Jessica says, I don't say that to scare you, but actually just to remind you that our longing for connection is legit, right? It is not a sign of weakness. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It is how we are actually made. And if we are lonely and longing for that connection, it's a sign that something is working right, that our bodies and our minds and our hearts are healthy, asking for what we need. But it can still be hard to be in that place of longing. And Jessica's article is actually not really talking about commitments to a partner or to a family. Her article is about the longing for friendship. Simple friendship that is still sometimes not so simple. She says, I know you're run ragged and have almost nothing left to give. I know you're exhausted and fed up and you can barely make it through the day. I know the problem with finding friends in adulthood, right, is that we're all exhausted and on our last pair of yoga pants. (laughs) None of us have a ton of extra to give. She says finding our tribe in this stage of life is like a bunch of starving people on a deserted island all trying to help each other find food. It's pretty rough. No shame, she says, or judgment. But the thing is, if you want a tribe, you have to find a way to make space for those relationships. Leaders of religious communities and spiritual communities, like this one, like me, we typically read a lot 
about this topic because loneliness is a huge problem in so many of our lives and connection is such a big part of what our synagogues or mosques or sanghas or churches offer to the world. It's the most common thing I hear when I ask people here why they decided to Google UU churches near me or why they finally turned into that parking lot after seeing the sign out there on 113 and driving by for weeks or months or years. They say it's because they were seeking community. They were seeking connection. And that's hard to find. We know that committing to something for the long haul can really help us in our lives. We know that it benefits us to have those kinds of relationships that can hold us up in ways that other connections sometimes can't. But as Jessica reminds us, those connections also ask a lot of us. They ask us to find the energy to commit, to devote ourselves to something, and that takes an ongoing practice of bravery and faith and vulnerability. Her little article happened to sum up a lot of what I've read about what actually helps us cultivate and sustain the beauty in our commitments, the good stuff, those meaningful relationships that last for the long haul together. She talks about five key practices for this, the first of which you might have heard before, showing up. You all did that today. Congratulations. One out of five, right? Now, showing up, it's important to remember, it can feel like just an ask, but it's a two-way street. We show up for people in our lives. We show up for the places in our lives, but they also show up for us. I showed up today, the band showed up today, our tech volunteers showed up today, our greeters showed up today, our setup team showed up today. We show up for each other to create these places. A good place to start and notice who is showing up for you already is by actually listing out all of those people and places in your life. Whether or not you're married or have a partner, we're all in at least a few long-term relationships. Let's say I'm going to count it as five years or more, right? If you've been in a relationship with someone or something for more than five years. How many of you are in a long-term relationship then with your barber or your hairstylist? (laughs) There you go. If we think about it that way, right, most of us have dozens and dozens of long-term relationships in our lives. You're in some kind of long-term relationship with your parents, You're in some kind of long-term relationship with your kids, if you have kids, your siblings, if you have siblings, your family members. You might have a long-term relationship with a coworker or two, with your neighbors, with the town that you live in, with the coffee shop that you go to in the morning or the school that your kids attend or maybe you attend. Many of us here are in a long-term relationship with Wellsprings, with this congregation, We can have those kinds of relationships with our therapists, with our accountants, with the people who run our favorite local restaurant. And of course, the quality and the intimacy in these relationships is certainly not the same in all of them. But regardless, these are the people who already show up for us, and we show up for them. They're already here, 
And we could, at any moment, choose to invest differently in any of them. Which brings me to the next two things on that list that Jessica says helps us nurture these long-haul relationships. Being willing to sacrifice some of our own comfort to be what I like to call a fair, sorry, an all-weather friend. Jessica says, don't be a fair-weather friend. I think we know what that means, right? I like to think of it as an all-weather relationship. It's one where both parties are willing to be there no matter what else is going on, are willing to ask for help, willing to let each other see our messes, the rainy days, the cloudy days, and to love each other and be loved in the thick of all of it. The all-weather relationship thing is actually captured in that most classic of commitments that we make, right? When I look back on all of the weddings that I've done, all of the weddings that look just something like this, right? That moment when the couple exchanges vows, almost everybody wants that all-weather clause in there somewhere, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I've married people who've written their own vows. I've married one couple who literally said to me, we want the TV vows. (laughs) We want the vows that they read uh, on sitcoms when people get married, right? And that is the centerpiece of those vows, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. I know some of us in the room have been married at some point or are now. How many of you said something like that on your wedding day? A lot of us. How did it feel to say it versus doing it? It's a beautiful gift and a relief to hear that from someone and to say that to someone. But in the thick of it, it's harder. The Buddhist teacher Susan Piver writes about relationships and she talks about how hard this is. How it is so romantic and powerful to make that promise. But it is also heartrending to live it out. A relationship that's all weather requires, she says, an ongoing, never-ending, ongoing willingness to not know, to be open, to be thrilled sometimes, to be bored sometimes, to be confounded and delighted to take chances and put it all on the line. To not know, to be confounded, to put it all on the line. What does that look like on the ground in my life or your life? What does that look like at 1 a.m. on a sleepless Wednesday night? To not know when your kid is coming home. To be confounded by the friend who's mad at you but won't tell you why. To put it all on the line because your business partner is asking you just to trust them. Those are the hard moments. That's what that commitment to an all-weather relationship can look like in practice. All that grief and uncertainty comes right alongside the delight and the thrill and the long, slow process of loving each other. Which is maybe why the biggest part of our commitments and our devotion. The biggest part of setting our hearts upon other people for the long haul 
comes with the last two things on Jessica's list. Pursuing and choosing. Pursuing might seem like the one on this list that maybe you haven't heard before. The most novel one, especially when we take this just out of the romantic realm. But pursuing is a part of all of our connections. Pursuing just means making the commitment to seek one another out over and over again. It's not an unthinking or a craving kind of pursuit, but a commitment and a choice that we make to pursue with love, to leave open that door always. This is the pursuit like I talked about a few weeks ago. The shepherd in that New Testament story that Jesus tells who knows that that one lost sheep matters and will leave the flock of 99 on the hill to go find the one that's missing. Or the pursuit also in the Christian scriptures of the father who leaves that door open for his son who has gone to return and who rejoices when that prodigal son finally comes back. Committing for the long haul means that we are willing to pursue, especially in those moments when things are broken and we might need to do some repair. We might need to recommit to trusting each other. The social worker and author and speaker, Brene Brown, who I know many of us here are familiar with her books and her work, she has a wonderful story about this about a day that her daughter came home from third grade. And they walked through the front door together. And as soon as they got inside, her daughter, who'd been kind of quiet and weird in the car, burst into tears and crumpled onto the floor. And eventually, through her sobs, she told her mom, something hard happened to me at school. And I shared it with a couple of my friends at recess. But by the time we got back into the classroom after recess, everybody in class knew. They told everybody. And everyone was laughing and pointing and calling me names. And she said, Mom, it was so bad. The kids were so loud and disruptive that the teacher had to take marbles out of the jar. In Brene Brown's daughter's classroom, They had a practice of keeping a marble jar for the behavior of the kids for when they were making good choices together. There was a marble jar right at the front of the room. And every time the class was doing well, the teacher would put a marble into the jar. And when it got all the way to the top, they had a party. They had a celebration for all the good choices that they made. But when things were going poorly, the teacher took a marble out. And Brene Brown's daughter said it was going on for so long, the teacher kept saying, I'm going to take more marbles out. I'm going to take more marbles out. She said, Mom, it was one of the worst moments of my life. And she looked at her mother and said, I will never trust anyone again. Now, Brene Brown said, I will confess to you. What I wanted to say to my daughter in that moment was, you're damn straight you won't. Who are those girls' mothers? (laughs) I'm calling them up, right? Screw those kids. From now on, honey, you talk to me. You can trust me, okay? I'll have your back. 
But she knew that that would not serve her daughter in the long run. She knew that her daughter needed to learn how to pursue the right kinds of relationships and connections. To start now at practicing forgiveness and repair and learning how to build and rebuild trust for herself. So she sat down on the floor with her daughter and she said, I know you feel like you'll never trust anyone again. But honey, trust is a lot like that marble jar. Those friends that you talked to over recess, you weren't foolish to tell them that. Over time, they had filled up your marble jar. They had been good friends to you, and you had dropped marbles into that jar with them. But sometimes people will do things that take the marbles out, too. Building trust with each other over time means just that we pay attention to our marble jars. And you get to decide, honey. You will learn over time with lots of experiences like this who and how to trust. Just pay attention to your marble jars. I wish I'd had that lesson earlier in my life. I have had moments in my life, and maybe you have too, where it didn't just feel like the marble jar was depleted. It felt like one of us picked it up and smashed it into pieces on the floor. Marbles everywhere. And I have also had moments of pursuit where I decide or the other person decides that that relationship matters enough that we are in it for the long haul. When the other person actually goes off and finds a new jar and puts it on the table. And maybe because they put it on the table, I put one marble back in. And we try again. Those moments when someone goes through that effort to find a new jar and put it on the table, whether that looks like an apology, a clearing of the air, a true owning up, Those are some of the bravest and most vulnerable moments I've ever witnessed and some of the most powerful moments of grace and hope I've ever seen. Moments like that are powerful examples of the idea that we don't have to be perfect or right or certain or unchanging to be held and to be in relationship with each other. Instead, it is exactly our willingness to break apart and then to truly repair that keeps us going and keeps us connected. Which I think brings us to the last way that Jessica, the author, suggests to nurture these long-haul relationships and maybe the foundation for all of the other ones that we've talked about, which is choosing. It can be hard sometimes to hear advice or lists or or things like this, especially when we think of them in terms of maybe the person who won't apologize to us, the person who abused us or who hurts us and won't change their behavior. And it's important to remember that we don't have to have this kind of relationship with every single person. That this is about making an intentional commitment, right? What we set our hearts on 
If we think we have to do these things in every single relationship, that's like being in a long-term relationship with everyone we meet, which isn't how life works. Right? Jessica says, that's like saying it's selfish to only marry one husband because what about all the single guys out there? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> we get to choose where and who we really devote ourselves to. And we can choose the people and the places that do help us grow that do help us find fulfillment, the ones where we feel brave and alive when we're with them, at least more often than not. I heard a powerful story about choosing the long haul when I watched a series of interviews with these two people. That is Susan Morgan and Bill Morgan. Susan's on the left, Bill's on the right. They are a married couple. They live in Massachusetts. And they're both longtime meditators and meditation teachers. And about a decade ago, they decided that it was really a time that they wanted to deepen their practice. They knew that they weren't getting any younger and that their time was limited. And meditation and this practice had been so important in their lives, had given them so much, that they decided to go on a silent retreat together for two years. Two whole years. Yeah. The series of interviews with Susan and Bill that you can find online, it's fascinating. It answers all kinds of practical questions you might have, like how did they do that, right? How did they suspend the rest of their life for two years? Where did they go? What in God's name possessed them to do that? They talk about all those things. But what the interviews make clear is that they very intentionally chose this commitment to practice together. And even more so, they found ways to make choosing and re-choosing an ongoing practice. Bill and Susan went to a retreat center where they had separate rooms. They saw each other every single day. They spent more time together than usual, but they were not allowed to speak to each other. They couldn't sleep in the same room. They actually couldn't touch while they were on retreat. They followed the same guidelines as every other person who was there with them at the center. But they both had, like everyone else, a small envelope on the outside of their door. Reminds me of being in college. I had that in my dorm room. right? A little place where someone could leave a note for them. And when they felt the need to check in with each other in words, they would do that. They'd write a note to each other. And one day, about maybe a year and a half into their retreat, Susan left Bill a note that said, I think I need another year. Bill was not expecting this. (laughs) And Bill was not really happy about it. As you can see in the picture, Susan is bald. They talk about that in the video, too. And he confessed to her and to us, when I saw that note, I thought about how I'd always thought Susan had a bit more nun in her than I had monk in me. And he wondered, wow, is this going to be the end of our marriage? Is she going to choose this life and this way of being over being with me? And it's not like he was just along for the ride. He was a committed meditator himself, but it still scared him. And they did take breaks. 
from their retreat. About one week per year, they would leave the retreat center for seven days just to check in with important people to make sure their life outside hadn't gone completely off the rails and to check in with each other. And so the next time that they took one of those breaks, they talked and Bill confessed to his wife what he was afraid of. But he also told Susan that he had sat with those fears, that he had spent his time that he needed to with that uncertainty, and that he'd chosen to say yes, that he would join her for another year. And that even if she did decide to take up the life of a nun, that he would be heartbroken but he would support her choice. As you can see, Susan and Bill are still on speaking terms. (laughs) They are still married. They are still devoted to each other, it seems, as ever. And that's even after Susan did the exact same thing to Bill in the middle of year three on the retreat. (laughs) Left the exact same note. In the end, they spent a total of four years on silent retreat together. We get to choose who and what is worthy of our devotion. And while safety and certainty is never guaranteed, it can also be a wild, brave adventure when we make that commitment to connect. As far as we know, the long haul is only for as long as we have left on this earth. So may we live as bravely and brightly as we can, showing up for each other, sacrificing in all kinds of weather, pursuing and choosing each other while we're all still here. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I invite you to pray with me. God of changes, of time passing, the one who holds all of these seasons that we go through in our lives, the one who makes the green shoots come out of the dirt and the mulch every spring. May we remember to live while we're here, to notice the moments that we are grateful for, to take an active role in choosing how we spend our time together on this earth. And may we find the joy and the risk and the adventure as much as we can in all of it. For these prayers that I've spoken and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.